Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Hi there, and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I was joined by Margaret Ross. Dr. Margaret Ross is a senior clinical psychologist specializing in palliative care and psychosocial cancer care at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. She is the chief principal investigator for the Australian Psilocybin-Assisted Psychotherapy Study. This groundbreaking study seeks to investigate the potential utility of this novel modality in the treatment of depression and anxiety in palliative patients. I had a real ball chatting to Margaret. She's great fun. She's very personable, as well as being very knowledgeable in her field of palliative care. And it was nice to get an overview of where she sees research going in Australia with regards to psychedelic science. So as always, enjoy the chat and I'll see you on the other side. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. Really appreciate having you on. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think the best, the best way for us to kick off is I often find that I go straight into chatting to people about, you know, where they're at with their research or, or, you know, where they're at professionally with psychedelics. And I often miss the sort of backstory of what got people interested in in the field in the first place. So before we get on to your, you know, professional bio and, and, you know, how you describe what you do professionally at the minute, I'd love to hear a little bit of a background as to what what, what brought you to to the field of psychedelic research. Well, I guess um, that... There's actually a really kind of lovely story about how <laughs> I uh, I'd, I'd attended um, an entheogenesis um, symposium in 2017 and uh, was you know just keen to hear about the research, various other things that was sort of going on as well. And um, at that um, presentation, uh, Martin Williams, who I know you've already um, had on your program, who's um, the president of PRISM, had um, a, a talk that was just prior to Rick Doblin coming in and uh, giving his you know, big kind of uh, talk that we're all looking forward to. And he, it, the talk was titled, you know, The State of Psychedelic Research in Australia to Date. And that was the title slide. And then uh, he moved to the next slide, which was Thank You for Your Attention. And then there was just this, um, you know, roar of laughter throughout the crowd. And unfortunately, though, the, the sobering aspect of that was the fact that there was you know, really very little happening. I think there was some ketamine uh, research going on, but otherwise, you know, with the classic psychedelics, nothing was happening. And this is after, you know, close to a decade of uh, advocacy and work by um, PRISM, you know, really uh, promoting the dialogue and um, trying to promote the research. Um, and there was just still nothing. And uh, all of these, uh, you know, attempts to try and get some of the research off the ground here were just flatly rejected. So, you know, we were pretty in pretty a bit of a bad way. It wasn't looking good for us. Um, and then Ben Sessa sort of gave this rousing um, talk as well, basically saying to, you know, if, if there is anyone in the audience who who is able to, to get involved in this, um, if you're in that position, if you've got a sort of a privileged position where you can access research and you can, you know, act as a clinician, and I felt this knot in my stomach, kind of going, oh, you know, because I knew how risky it would be. Um, but at the same time, I, I was in a position where I was able to perhaps initiate it potentially. And it was still very pie in the sky at that point. But um, I went there for, a, you know, a, an interesting weekend and came away with this massive knot in my stomach going, do I, don't I, do I, don't I? And um, probably only a few weeks after that, I sent an email to, to Martin and just said, look, um, I saw you speak at EGA and uh, I'm I'm writing uh, to reach out to you because I'm really hoping you can help me. I would love to initiate a trial in Australia with terminally ill patients that I see um, in palliative care at St Vincent's. And um, I think within 24 hours we're having coffee um, and hatching a plan. So um, that's sort of how uh, we got where we were um, and that was in January 2000, sorry, 2018. Um, and we were, yeah, that's where it all started. So from that point of view. Uh, and what stage uh, at the time of at the time of chatting, what, what stage are you at with that you know, plan that you initially hatched with, with uh, Martin over coffee? 
Uh, very happy to say we've just started screening. Um, so we've now got full approval. We are the first psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy trial in Australia. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're pretty excited. So we've uh, just started contacting patients. We need to move fairly quickly once we've screened our patients to move them to baseline and, and their first dose. So, uh, mm-hmm. but, yeah, we're, we're very, very excited. So we expect to have our first dose very early in the new year. That's quite a, um impressive timeline, uh, Margaret, to go from basically, you know, not in the stomach to screening patients and what are we looking at, you know. So uh, yeah, it, it, those types of timelines for the people who initiated this, I suppose this wave of, of uh, would be very, I, I hope that people who are listening to this, who were part of the, the, the sort of cadre of people who initiated this wave of the psychedelic research are enthused by the fact that that's we're talking years, not decades. Now we're talking could be talking months in the future to to get from sort of incubation to um, to trialing. That's really really positive. So uh, and uh, Martin, Martin speaks very highly of your drive to get that off the ground. So um, I don't, it wasn't a, it wasn't an accident. No, we had um, we we literally for that first year before, like while we were writing the protocol, we met weekly over breakfast. Just kept uh, you know kind of. Um, you know, kind of encouraging each other and, you know, sort of it, it was weird. We sort of, even though it wasn't looking good for us, like it was, you know, two decades of research that was just, you know, on high, on hold um, in the US, but it was, you know, three decades or more in Australia. So, um, but we just sort of just kept going and went, no, we, we, we really have to do this. And I think that the other drive really was the fact that um, um, we have so few treatment options for our patients who are distressed at end of life um and i've been working you know as a psychologist in palliative care now um at st vincent's for eight years and uh so i work in cancer and, and palliative care and uh you know that it's um you know, i don't want to exaggerate it it's not a huge number in that regard but the 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 people who don't respond to medication or who don't respond to talking therapies or creative therapies like art and music and so forth um they remain terrified, abjectly terrified and despairing and it is horrible and it is heartbreaking for patients and it's heartbreaking for their families and, um, you know, one of the other jobs that I do aside from seeing patients and families is to debrief staff, um, nursing, medical, all the way through to the, you know, our cleaners and our, our ward clerks. So, uh, and they feel it too. So it has this, you know, it's a real community of care in, in, in um, palliative medicine. So I was very... Uh, determined because we were really fed up with just um, feeling completely helpless and just, you know, you hit the point of, of um, uh, the limits of what medicine and psychiatry can provide. And when you see that level of suffering, it just, it's a, it's a whole other motivation. So really that just kept pushing us and, um, yeah, we just sort of kept to, you're really kind of encouraging each other and uh, tried to make a protocol that was um, very difficult for them to reject. And uh, luckily enough, they first first attempt they actually gave us conditional approval mm, I, I like that uh sort of get very difficult to, to 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 reject it's sort of like a maybe you have a secret history in the mafia making making, <laughs> making them offers that they can't refuse <laughs> um so, yeah. so would i be right in saying that would i be right in saying that the the knot in the stomach um has come from a, a dissatisfaction uh with what is on offer for a sort of sub cohort of people who who come into your care and 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 leave the world terrified is that is that where the knots coming from or yeah, it came it came absolutely that was that was one part of it and the other part of it that sort of was in conflict with that was the fact that if um if i put if i stuck my neck out um publicly it's, it's that's sort of coming out in a way that that you do support obviously psychedelic research and uh there's all sorts of associations that go along with that but then you know and people had warned me you you are going to be forever known as that kooky psychologist that no one will want to employ um you know this is going to it'll kill your career so i sort of had you know there was a little bit of anticipation of like oh god you know but then again you getting back to that that experience of sitting with people who are uh um, dying at their bedside and I mean that's it's profound to sit with somebody who is you know at the end of their life and when they're distressed uh and they're they're you know there's this sort of 
it's you're just stripped back to your raw humanity. Uh, even if you're there as a therapist, to, to witness that kind of suffering is something else. So that was a very big driving force um, in in um, in overcoming that that knot that sort of said, "Oh, is this a good idea?" So um, I was really keen to to try and do everything I could to 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 get it off the off the ground. Before we get into that, I'd love to unpack the protocol and, and you know similarities and differences with previous work that has been done on you know psilocybin assisted psychotherapy for palliatively for palliative patients. Um, uh, you, you've alluded to um, the let's say the 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 echoes the the, the sort of longer term impacts that the ripples that move outside the 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 actual palliative patient into their families and then the teams that are dealing with them. Um, and those are sort of hard. Those are hard. I don't th- think anyone reasonable would, would, you know, say that those, those uh, sorts of negative impacts aren't there. They're just quite difficult to quantify. So if someone were to ask you, okay, I get that this will be beneficial for the uh, teams that deal with the terminally ill patients and their families, um, but I, I just I'd, I'd like love something tangible. What 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 benefits do you uh, would you posit will will happen if people do start to die better? I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think um, there's there's enormous kind of potential here. And again, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. You're always still obviously at the beginning of the trial, but you know, looking at the um, the preliminary findings. Um, from those three seminal kind of works. And there was another one as well using LSD in Switzerland, um, just focusing on psilocybin for, for the benefit of this conversation. But, um, you know, they, I mean, aside from the, the really rapid and dramatic reductions in depression and anxiety, which is what the FDA kind of look for in terms of, you know, looking at uh, therapeutic benefit and so forth, the, the, the um, ability to kind of transcend the fear of dying is uh, the thing that we're, I think, really key and what we're, we're after here. Um, and it was something that came up in all the studies and also previous studies before the, you know, the 1970s Controlled Substances Act, and which kind of uh, got the, all that science was unfortunately buried. But what they found was that, you know, it had an extraordinary um, uh, ability to uh, really reduce people's anxiety around death and dying. Um, amongst other things, and obviously it wasn't the most robust studies sort of back in the day. But yeah, again, a, a lot of that was lost. So we sort of had to sort of make new ground there. But for, particularly for, for um, patients who are dying, I think one of the the things that that I see is that you know on on top of the fact that you know there's the depression, anxiety, there's just this existential ache. I think, um, and you see it in the eyes. I mean, everybody has it to a certain degree, but you know when when people are really really frightened of death there's something about um you know it there's potential of psilocybin to occasion mystical or spiritual type experiences that that helps with perspective it helps you know um really kind of rejig some of that that existential thinking um and existential maturity if you like so i think that um in some ways it's a it's potentially a really genius fit for ailment and medicine uh, because you know psychedelics seem to be able to access that in a way that nothing else can. So I was very excited by uh, the findings of, of what was going on overseas, and, and um, you know, talking about existential distress is sort of at head level. We needed it at gut level. We needed it at spiritual, every other level that you could potentially kind of um, think of here. It's um, it is all encompassing. It is paralyzing. And it has a profound impact on that patient, on that person. So, um, and then yeah, the families as well. I mean, if if you see your loved one have a more peaceful death, um, they're far less likely to experience, you know, um, complex and persistent bereavement. Um, it's you know their their grief trajectory is is easier to work through. You know, it can be extremely traumatic. Uh, for families to watch a loved one die in distress. Um, and the other thing that we know about existential distress is that it can augment people's experience of physical pain. 
um, and nausea and so forth. So we know that, and, and I think this is why I had so much support from our palliative medicine uh, director and department to to do this. I mean, we're very stitched into them, into that department as well, even though we sort of exist as a separate department. But because obviously psychological well-being is is a, a very you know key and core part of good overall palliative um, care, we're very sort of part of that. But yeah, the the reason that they were so supportive of this was because they know that when people have treatment refractory pain or nausea, it may be you know. And and is often fueled by this, you know, kind of searing existential distress that we just can't get a handle on. Hmm. It's um. Th- I think that that point that you raise about um, the modulation of pain, just that pure materialist approach to you know how much pain, uh, m- pain medication do do we need to give to people? I see that as a as a, a useful little point to get people on side who when they hear the words existential or spiritual, uh, you know, will just run an absolute mile. I'm thinking about the, um, yeah, sure. And I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a temperamental thing as much as anything else. But, um, I, I, um, I like the work with, I'm very, I've focused a little bit on the work around palliative care because I think that there will be, um, I will, I think that there will increasingly be evidence that is in their wheelhouse of, Regardless what you consider about the sort of phenomenological experience, patient A, I had to deliver and administer far less opioid medication to patient A than patient B, you know, and the, those that overlap I think will be. So um, I just want to put a pin in that as well, because um, I'd be interested to hear about the protocol, um, but also to wonder what you're baselining are you also going to baseline um obviously you're going to do the full battery of, of psychological tests but are you guys going to be paying close attention to the, the pain medication that people do receive during their, their stay in, in the yeah ward? so essentially what happens anyway with with clinical trials you do have to look at um the medications that people take and if there's any changes or if there's any additions or if they cease those medications so that's something that we we measure anyway um <clears throat> excuse me just yeah, obviously we need to be mindful of yeah different um, uh, variables that could influence our outcome as well. So yeah, but um, I think you're right that there's um there's a lot of currency in that you know in terms of um, to to use their speak in a way utilization of healthcare cost, um, opiate mm. use, all that kind of thing. Um, but the reality is opiates have you know at you know palliative care doses have pretty nasty side effects um, for patients that are quite disabling. So um, if we can, you know, leverage that, uh, that, that, you know, that they can have a reduced experience of pain because their distress is under control or it's, it's eased significantly enough that they can, you know, uh, either endure the, the, the discomfort that they have or, or um, you know, that distress is just not augmenting and making it worse. Um, that's that's a I mean it's a it's a, a bonus it's a side effect of, of um, um, hopefully a side effect that that uh, we we may see so we're we're interested to see um, what can come out of it. Another another uh, point that would be just just come to me there is when you uh, and when you ask people who say work in ICU or, or different uh, sort of MDs who are who are dealing with these sorts of end of life pains you know terminally ill conditions there isn't necessarily that bright line between whether they are using those really heavy duty pain medications for an analgesic purpose or a dissociative purpose so there's a potential that they're actually seeing the distress at the psychological level and then they're using whatever tool is in the toolkit which is you know a dissociative uh, an analgesic which has secondary dissociative properties and if you were able to give them something which doesn't knock out physiology as much you know exorbitantly lower doses but does address the presenting complaint which is not pain in the body but pain in the heart or pain in the soul they would have to accept that yeah you're spot on i mean we and we see that on on our palliative care unit where people you know uh, are asking for analgesic and um uh 
you know, they sort of keep requesting it and so forth, but it doesn't really sort of have much of an impact on their pain experience. All of a sudden they're, be, they're becoming tolerant of it. They're requiring higher doses and so forth. And we suspect then that there is um, uh, a psychological component because they may have a better response to, say, for example, um, uh, an anxiolytic, like an um, anti-anxiety medication, for example. Um, and we go, hang on a minute, their pain is responding to this. So, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's certainly uh, issues of... of um, opioid um being used but for people who don't have either you know good um understanding of their own emotional state either um so they 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 experience their anxiety or their their um distress as pain or their their pain increases and so forth but they won't they won't name it as distress there may be a stigma attached to it or what have you or they just don't don't recognize it as that but so then you do see escalating um requests for opiate uh management so and that as i say causes a whole host of problems as well to get more into the sort of the brass tacks of the study, um, the, could you outline the sort of study design and maybe points in how it um, is similar and is different to the work, say, done at Johns Hopkins? Yeah, sure. Um, you can hear my uh, dog um, giving us a bit of a soundtrack in the background. <laughs> um, so we've got um, – we're aiming to recruit 40 of our patients um, who have a life-threatening illness. The, the, I guess one of the key differences between the previous studies and, uh, and our study is that we're including uh, not only cancer patients but people who have uh, what we call non-malignant life-threatening illnesses, so things like end-stage um, respiratory illness, end-stage kidney disease, end-stage, um, you know, cardiac failure, whatever it is. So um, it because, uh, you know, arguably they're a group that misses out on a lot of the support. We, we've got lots of supports for various cancer um, populations and cohorts, but, you know, um, people who have end-stage respiratory illness, for example, or... Um, um, in stage renal disease, it's it's a little less supportive. So they you, they may have higher rates of, of anxiety and um, uh, depression, um, and certainly anecdotally that we've seen that in the past as well. So we wanted to include all palliative patients in this regard. Um, so from from that point of view, that's the the key distinction from the studies that happened in the US. Uh, but otherwise, you know, fairly similar. Um, in terms of how we're sort of uh, mapping it out, our design is slightly different. We have um, our first phase of treatment is randomised controlled trial. So we're using similar to what they uh, did with um, the NYU study where they had um, psilocybin and um, niacin as a placebo, what they call an active placebo because it provides a flushing response. So people who are psychedelic naive uh, you're, are a little confused as to what's going on and they may think it's the you know, psilocybin. I mean, um, unfortunately, one of the problems in psychedelic research, and we've just kind of um, squared with it, is the fact that it's very difficult to blind a psychedelic compound when it's under investigation. So uh, we've got the the randomised control trial aspect is the first dose. Um, so people will either receive psilocybin or niacin. They're followed up for seven weeks. And then um, after they've had a seven-week follow-up period, we then have an open-label dose for all participants, which is offered to them. So, um, and the reason we did that was, you know, ethically I felt very uncomfortable about just having a situation where we've had people who were, you know, really desperate for the trial treatment um, only to receive the placebo, get a, get a shot of nice and, oh, thanks very much for coming. Yes, yeah, sorry, you didn't get the, the active treatment. So we wanted to actually offer them um, um an opportunity to experience the treatment. So we've got an open label extension arm is how it's known, which is not uncommon in cancer trials in general. Uh, so that way you do actually get uh, uh, the opportunity to have um, an experience of the treatment. So post the um, – oh, sorry, I meant to say as well that post the, um, the second dose, the open label dose, we then follow people up for uh, another 26 weeks. So that's an interesting point you raised about um the um wanting people to have the opportunity to receive uh to to receive psilocybin treatment mm -hmm. yeah um because that i think attests to the maybe desperation is the wrong word but the the necessity for this in the field mm -hmm. so if, yeah. if for example this was being compared with other things where people were quite 
well, like this is just my opinion, but yeah. please stop me if I'm wrong. But mm-hmm. the need the need is so palpable. The need is so clearly so palpable. Yeah. Um, it isn't comparing something that's slightly better with to see if it's a wee bit better than what you know the current mainstay yeah. is. It, it yeah. seems like it is. Mm-hmm. It is psilocybin versus vacuum. No, I think you're right. I, I absolutely, I absolutely think you're right. And I think that desperation is not too strong a word at all. Um, you know, the it's a very useful metric. Um, having a look at the 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 emails that I've received since this got media attention, um, there are people who the, the desperation is probably even an understatement. When people, you know, when they, you know, in psychology, psychiatry, we say that you know the 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 greatest anxiety, fear of death. Um, you know, when you're faced with that, it is quite paralyzing for many people. And, um, you know, if medication isn't cutting it and talking therapy isn't cutting it, there's not much else we can do. Uh, the only other thing that you can do, which you can only really offer people when they're um, closer to being, you know, imminently dying, is that you can offer them palliative sedation, which essentially makes them unconscious. It doesn't, it's not euthanasia, it's very different. But you make them unconscious because of their psychological anguish, and we have had situations where we've had to do that because people are just so distressed. How does how does that impact the clinical team that's working with the? Profoundly, profoundly, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the WHO regulations. Obviously, we need people to be seen. Um, there's a first opinion, a second opinion, and we need to obviously consult very widely before we we do something like that. But when you've got people who are begging to be uh, kind of sedated and and not aware of what's going on as they die. You know, you're talking desperation. As I say, you're that is not too strong a word to use at all. So there is for that small percentage of people who just cannot get relief. Um, it is desperation. There there is nothing else that 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 can give them um, relief. So they spend this really precious remaining time that they do have, terrified, unable to speak with their loved ones and, and have those meaningful conversations that their, their loved ones are dying to have. They're withdrawn um, and um, and suffering. They're anguished. It's, um, it's horrible. So, yeah, it was um, yeah, very important that we were able to at least explore an alternative. We've ch- chatted a little bit off, Mike, about how the, there has been – it's such an emotive topic, uh, death and dying. You know, it generates a significant amount of interest without then adding psychedelics, but it's a bit like putting a hurricane on top of a, of a storm in terms of uh, how, how this flags up for, for media outlets. Totally. So totally. I understand there's been a lot, a lot, a lot of interest. Um, maybe just what, what's, what's been your uh, experience with the media's uh, interest in, in your work? Um quite literally exploded so essentially we knew that it would be obviously being novel and you know controversial given the psychedelic tag uh we had to obviously notify our media department at the hospital and they were very front-footed about this and um uh you know we they were they had a very kind of good way of sort of thinking about this and saying you know it, it needs to be um we need to focus on the science here rather than allowing it to sort of run ahead of itself and get into something else. And uh, so we thought there'd be a bit of interest. We thought we might, you know, there was um, a newspaper who was interested, maybe a, a radio, um, and then it got the front page. It was a very slow news week back in January um, after Christmas. The tennis was on. That was about it. Um, nothing else was really happening and we it would made the front page of one of our national newspapers and it just went berserk. Um, by the time I got to work at 9.30, I'd done, I think, four radio interviews and there were three major TV channels waiting for us to do, we had to do a press conference and it was just unbelievable and it just did not stop all day. And then it hasn't really sort of stopped since then. We've had lots of interest um, overseas. I ended up doing um, uh, more recently um, BBC News wanted to do a snippet about it so the the interest was phenomenal um and it was not we were just not prepared for it at all we were prepared for a bit of um backlash we thought we may get a little bit of um backlash so we were very prepared for the you know the counter arguments um about why it would be you know useful uh, as a compound in a clinical and a medical setting um 
and the safety and so forth, and we were ready to talk about that. But it, it, we were prepared for the backlash. It just never happened. And we didn't get it from academia. We didn't get it from medicine. We didn't get it from the general public. And, in fact, it went the other way where we had this absolute outpouring of positive support. Um, and then the other, the other aspect of that was we were just flooded with inquiries, and I know Martin was as well, um, where people were looking, you know, people who weren't terminally ill were just desperate for treatment and said, look, do you know, I've got, you know, a 30-year history of, you know, crippling anxiety and panic disorder or PTSD or this or that, um, various things, you know, can you please help me? The treatments aren't working. And the the scale of that was a um, uh, pretty distressing and over. it was just overwhelming. We, we had uh, no idea it would strike such a chord. Um culturally and, and socially so yeah this was um very um it was a lovely surprise obviously having that such positive sentiment in the community and people have been extremely supportive but um yeah we we weren't expecting it i have to say it's, it's funny you should say that it's like if you go to a dinner party and you the host isn't no, notoriously quite snarky with you and then you, you've prepared all your little things you're going to say but yeah. retorts but then if they're the thing that the thing that will undo you is if they're just quite nice you know yeah, that's it. uh, it's not to be yeah oh what's wrong did I, yeah, or, no, what, yeah. what's your game here we were sort of bewildered I think even I think um you know the, the first day we had uh, the, the press conference and I I was talking uh to the media with one of my co-principal investigators Mark Bowie who's our director of palliative medicine and he was actually saying you know look we may get some backlash from you know the medical community we just didn't get it we just did not get it and I think um one of the um, the prepared arguments that I had was, you know, because people would be sort of like, oh, you know, magic mushrooms and blah, 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 and we were sort of ready to sort of say, well, you know what, actually, um, you know, we, we can't make assumptions about, you know, because people jump out of windows or whatever it is or do things at festivals and so we were all prepared for all that argument just to say, you know, you can't make assumptions about the clinical and medical utility of a psychedelic compound based on what you know about recreational use in that regard because it would be basically like saying it's unethical to use opiate pain relief in palliative care based on what we know about street users of heroin. It's just a bad argument and actually it, it you know, um, has really strong potential here looking at our preliminary findings here to, to really alleviate suffering of um, very vulnerable people. That's, that's that's a good one, Morgan. It's it's annoying that you didn't get to use it. You know, it sounds like you had that one ready to go, and they never asked. Yeah, practice that bloody argument. You're like, not to. I, I had one reporter ask me, but they didn't end up putting. You know, you do it's always a way. Like we ended up doing a half hour press conference, and I think they used about ten seconds of audio, but it didn't come up. But I was I had practiced that in the mirror. Or anyway, but um, again, I, I, we couldn't have asked for a more positive response. So we're really really fortunate. I'll, I'll I'll call you up again and pretend to be like an Australian shock jock and just start asking you completely. So tell me, it's just this, it's not more hippie stuff, you know, people jumping out of wind and then you can just hit me. You can just, you can just get them all out of your system. Yeah. You can have a nice, uh, and then you can, because they, they, they need to be aired. So the Australian media have been generally quite supportive of your work, but you're, you were expecting a little bit of backlash that never came. So then what would you would imagine would follow would be, okay, there's, there seems to be, um, unless the media outlets are totally out of touch with their, uh, you know, uh, the people that, they, uh, that they're sort of aiming at, you would say, okay, well, there's a general widespread support for this. There's a clear need. So the funding should be forthcoming, but there seems to be a gap between the media support and the, uh, governmental or financial support would that be fair to say absolutely and i think because it's still experimental as well so from, from a government perspective they're still sort of waiting and watching i think um sure. but the i i don't know whether the assumption is that 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 we're just very well funded with these trials and also it's not just us as well this is a global problem you know i've i've, I've heard roland uh talk about this and i've spoken with other you know collaborators in the u.s and and in london as well how um so much of what you do is sort of about bootlegging the compassion and kindness of your colleagues because we're just investigator-initiated studies. This is not Big Pharma. Big Pharma throw millions at clinical trials um, and they're not the least bit interested in this. So we're 
fully reliant on um, philanthropic donation and we're so, I mean, we're really fortunate um, that Martin was able to source, uh, from PRISM, was able to source um, $150,000 of funding um, at the beginning from um, uh, Vajadara Institute in Sydney. They put in $75,000 and then um, Tanya De Jong and Peter Hunt, who now head Mind Medicines Australia, um, who put in another $75,000. So, and PRISM were kind enough to kind of say, look, you know, there's this trial happening here and, and uh, you know, put the funding towards that. And um, that's a, that's an enormous amount, but it still doesn't cut it. Like, and unfortunately the, the bulk of the funding is coming from inside the hospital and just absorb, we're absorbing a lot of those costs in kind, um, uh, you know, and, and, Unfortunately, there's times where we're, we're coming in, we're actually not getting paid, we're doing things in our own time and so forth, which is, you know, again, we, we're doing it for the love of it and because we believe in this um, research potentially, but we, we have the reality of, of uh, we're, not big, we're not big pharma, so we're poorly funded, um, unfortunately. And, again, we're not the only ones who are like this. This is a, this is a global problem. Um, so, yeah, if, uh, if there's any... Any investors that who really want to sort of drop some some funding in um, Australian pockets here, this would be wonderful. Um, ourselves being one, it's in Vincent's Prism being another, Mind Medicines Australia. We're all really uh, desperate to sort of uh, continue the work because there's um, there's more ideas. There's so many researchers that have reached out to me, um, not only uh, um, nationally in Australia but also internationally as well. And there's some really really good groups that are that are keen to do it, but funding is really difficult to it's hard to attract a lot of the grants now are you know don't call us we'll call you so certain institutions are invited to apply for funding you can't cold call anymore so there's it's it's really difficult and um, unfortunately a lot of it ends up as I say you bootlegging goodwill of colleagues time I find a few of the I find a few of the um the, the aspects of, of the funding problematic uh and this was sort of Suresh uh, recently interviewed sort of brought my attention to this. I had been naively thinking that the, the 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 sort of philanthropic funding, you know, big donors giving millions of of, of dollars or pounds, was a satisfactory workaround. But what it, what I realise is that comes with there's never there's no such thing as a free lunch, so that is often often brings with them unconsciously their biases as to what they want to be researched. Uh, even if it's not actually stated, there are certain things uh, that can and sort of can't be. The money is earmarked for different things and you lack that uh, diversity of, of funding. So I think it's been a really brilliant addition and I'm not trying to obviously put millionaires off from donating. No, no, but please if that's, do. <laughs> if, 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 please do. Yeah. But there's, if there's a... The fitness of the overall field from a research perspective, that that is definitely not a good thing. In the same way as if it was just 100% government funded, that wouldn't be good either. So it's like there needs to be this diversity of different funding strands. And the other thing that you've mentioned, and, and a few researchers have talked off, you know, off mic to me about this, is how much they're having to uh, call in favours, uh, work unpaid overtime themselves, rely on, uh, on, on different people and, and sort of, you know, use goodwill and goodwill isn't uh it, it's not a it's not perpetual and also there, you, you can't it doesn't it doesn't allow you to demand certain standards so if someone is if you have a if you employ a therapist and they're go, coming in every saturday morning and then one saturday they say oh, i can't my kids got a soccer game or whatever you know you can't turn around and say you're contractually you're contractually obliged to do this because there is no contract and so that is a concern that I, I have. Yeah, I mean we're lucky. Obviously being in the hospital, anyone who has anything to do with the trial has to be ICHGCP trained. So there's – and also um, like on, you know, on paper as a result of like they're in the hospital system. So from that point of view, we're, we're covered. There's indemnity insurance, all that kind of thing. So contractually we're doing that. But again sort of, you know, like for example – a lot of the the time I'm sort of putting into this, I'm squeezing out of my ward time, or you know, so there's, you know, it comes with no backfill. So you're sort of you know working later, you're doing research on weekend, which is you know it is it's sort of part and parcel of that. But you're right, it it doesn't that goodwill gets squeezed out and it can burn out very quickly. I think um, th there are holes in that uh, model, um, but ideally, um, 
we can, you know, we, we need, uh, you know, government um, to take notice of these findings. And then really it's um, mm-hmm. um, hopefully that's not too far away. It's very, I, I don't know how they really haven't looked, even just, I mean, I know the FDA have kind of you know, uh given psilocybin breakthrough therapy status um, for depression. Um, and the only instance, instances where they will do that is when the preliminary findings are superior to that of existing treatment. So they will expedite its development and review, which is wonderful, but we need governments to then have a look at this and go, you know what, this is actually the most promising research in psychiatry in decades, decades. So mm-hmm. uh, it would be wonderful for them to to start kind of going, oh, actually they may may need some funding support here. And um yeah, so hopefully. And again, it was it's it's difficult um uh you know it was really just a very new idea. It's still kind of being absorbed, I think, uh by by our society, our community. I don't know how it is over in the UK, but um, you know, hopefully there's there's some some good news on the horizon in that regard when people realize that, you know what, actually there is a lot of utility and potential in researching these compounds and uh, but we need support. If someone was listening to this and thought, "Yeah, I'd like to give a few quid," do you guys have, uh, or or a few, or quite quite a few quid? Do you guys have vehicles to um, to receive the money that doesn't, you know, bring up conflicts of interest and things like that? I'm just wondering if someone has have already had this knot in their stomach the way you had to support this. What are the current What are the current What are the current pathways that people can can sort of give get the money to to the people who, who need to need to use it to, to do the research yeah look we do have um obviously there's uh, st vincent sort of has its own sort of foundation where uh they they're allowed to because a lot of obviously patients and so forth will bequest you know money and, and all that kind of thing we're actually really hoping that um yeah if if people wanted to help our trial that would be wonderful they could contact us um i i think when it's really biggest you know the sort of bigger sums of money where it's sort of beyond a gift donation kind of amount and again I, I couldn't tell you the ins and outs of what that would look like mm-hmm. but uh, we obviously do need to talk about those parameters about what that would mean obviously um, as a potential funder and so forth but uh, there are future trials obviously that that I think the hospital are interested in not just us there's also you know PRISM and Mind Medicines Australia are also looking for funding as well um, and uh, I think that there's there's a number of avenues whereby um, where we're really needing uh, that funding. But, again, obviously we, we need to be fairly explicit with them about, yeah, there, there are parameters, you know, in terms of entering into a sort of a funding uh, agreement in that regard uh, with with a research mm, institution. Sort of, so, yeah. So it sounds like if, if there were people listening, I would imagine, it, I've heard Ben Sessa previously say on a documentary, he gets contacted by a lot of people and they say, you know, I want to work with psychedelics. And they're sort of then infer that the question is, well, how can I become a psychedelic therapist? And he's basically saying, well, what do you do now? And they're like, oh, I'm a graphic designer or I'm a lawyer. And you think, if anything, those are, those are, those are the spaces, those are the spaces that need filled. So what I'm hearing from a job description is it's not another therapist it's a major gift officer you know those types of people who, who are professionals at acquiring you know large sums of money and, and understanding all the tax implications and, and you know that's a that's a whole there's like these all these different areas of expertise which which people i'm very excited about them bringing bringing through and not not you don't have to leave your career to work in this no, field. Quite no, I, I, I would absolutely agree. And, I, and I've had a similar situation where people have, you know, um, from all walks of life um, contact say, I really want to get involved in this. It's really exciting. I've personally had, you know, quite profound experiences. I really want to be involved. Um, but it's all about I want to be a therapist. But actually there are areas where, you know, we do need people who understand IT systems, who understand um, legality, who understand finances, who help, you know, research governance structures, all that kind of stuff. Where there are so many different roles in this. It's getting much bigger than um, these sort of small-scale trials that we're sort of looking at and it will continue to get bigger and we're going to need um, infrastructure in various very different disciplines to, to be able to kind of support that. Um, and eventually when it hopefully um, comes to market as a um, prescribable treatment. So there's, um, 
and I guess I would say that to people because I do, I get a lot of inquiries from, from various people. How do I become a therapist? Well, there's actually a lot of different ways you can be involved in this research without just having to sit with somebody as a, as a sitter as well. And even though I, that, that sounds, um, um, and it is, it's, you know, a very privileged position to be in as a, as a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist, but there are so many ways yeah. that you can add to this, um, you know, this research and not only the research, but then the, the eventual treatment as well so mm -hmm. and it's it's sort of uh, you hear people coming and oh, i'd like to leave my you know extraordinarily well-paid and high status job because <laughs> i want to do this and you think well okay <laughs> let, let's have you sit with someone and, and have them have them have them vomit on you a few times yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then be bored for status of time and then and then we'll we shall see no and um, that's not to say not to dissuade people who, who feel that's what they need but yeah it's a case of do you want to do you want to be a therapist uh for the right reasons and and also would you be any would you be any good at it because the, there are loads of people who i think would make terrible therapists but are up to their skill sets are so they don't really need to reappropriate their skill set in any shape or form it just needs to be jettisoned across to to help the help the team so you're raising your your screening clients um or patients right now margaret what what is your sort of timeline for this study and when do you think you will have preliminary findings from your from your work at oh gosh how long's a piece of string that um look, look looking at yeah. our um our colleagues from the u.s you know it, it took um nyu several years to get 29 completers it wasn't easy for them and i know that there were um it was difficult they you know obviously there were sort of from um, an outside department coming into a, a cancer setting, so that was a little bit tricky. We're, we were a little bit more stitched into our department, so that may make it a bit easier. Um, there is a thing called Lasagna's Law, which is don't overestimate your recruitment rate in clinical trials because the minute you start, they all disappear. <laughs> so um, I'm trying to be realistic about it. Um, if I could have this wrapped up in about three years, I would be elated um 40 patients is right. a lot we also still have and this is the thing you know this is why we, we sort of need our funding on top of the research that we're doing we still have our clinical responsibilities as a as a department you know we still need to see patients on the ward and and do our usual sort of thing um we haven't really been able to to buy a lot of extra eft just for dose day really for about maybe 30 of our patients so we're still you know uh holding a lot of um absorbing a lot of that time um uh, in kind um, on our days, what we're there, or also our days off as well. So, um, yeah, so if three years, if we can wrap it up then, I'll be elated. But it would probably take around about that time, yeah. Maybe, maybe earlier, but but um, I would say no earlier than that, to be honest. Well, I'll buy you, I'll buy you a lasagna when you're, when you're finished. <laughs> the last patient, I think. <laughs> Uh, no, it's um, yeah. This is a yeah. I've, I've worked in clinical trials before, and and uh, yeah. I think one of the, the the problems is if you sort of overestimate your recruitment targets, you can run into trouble. So, I've just sort of, hopefully we've we've set reasonably realistic targets in that regard. Obviously, the media attention has really helped, um, but again, you know, we've got some self selecting um, uh, participants. But then, you know, not everyone that we screen will be eligible. So we've got a lot of interest, but people may not be um, appropriate. With there's obviously a very thorough screening process, not only medically because obviously a very medically unwell population, but also psychiatrically, which is where a lot of the the adverse events um, uh, can be mitigated with proper screening. So yeah, it's and quite a process. Obviously, not to be too exhaustive, but you've you've mentioned. Um, uh, you know that there's a bit more physiologically inclusive than say the, the the previous studies, and that it's not just you know terminally ill cancer patients yeah, that you guys are, are recruiting. But what would yeah. be some of, what would be some of the exclusion criteria that are maybe more specific to a population like this? Because I think there's been quite a lot of coverage of you know heavily screening for schizophrenia, you know, sort of extended family screening. Are there certain things in this particular population? Is, is there anything in this particular population that would, would preclude them from being involved? Yeah, so it, tends, it really we have to look at the stage of their illness. Um, if they're too unwell to participate, obviously they won't be able to tolerate the treatment. Um, if they're what we deem medically unstable, for example, if they've, yeah, they've, they've got um, uh, refractory 
pain. It's just really uncontrolled. Like if they're writhing and it's just not controlled, we, we need to optimize all of their uh, symptoms to begin with. Um, obviously, they can't have an active delirium. We've got to be mindful of people who've got very vulnerable brains as well, people who've got um, uh, brain disease. So if they've got um, uh, cancer, metastases, or you know, disease in central nervous system, um, that's an exclusion, unfortunately, because we just don't know what aspects of their maybe higher order cognitive processing may be impacted by disease. It's really difficult to tell uh, um, some of the time. So we run the risk of unzipping people and then not being able to zip them back up. Um, and we've certainly, you know, had situations like that where people who have had brain disease and they've had a history of trauma, you know, unfortunately just spontaneously have situations like that. So those sorts of things we're being very conservative. Um, there's certain cardiac parameters that we're we're looking at as well. Uh, the reason being largely, and again, it may be a little bit of um, overkill, but we have to be fairly conservative here. But uh, the, we've found in previous studies that there is a sort of fairly, it's a non-significant, but it is it, it is um, uh, an elevation in heart rate and blood pressure. And it's really just sort of, it tends to abate um, within a couple of hours of ingestion. But we obviously need to be mindful of people who have got, you know, cardiac, really severe cardiac dysfunction that could potentially put them into a state of uncontrolled hypertension. So uh, if we had a hypertensive crisis, that kind of thing. So we've, we're, but again, there's there's a bit of leeway there. Um, and then there's sort of, you know, some liver and, and kidney parameters as well that we're looking at. But for the most part, if they're medically kind of reasonably stable, we can, we can take people who are, you know, have got um, a degree of life force in them. Obviously, if people are imminently dying, we cannot accept them. Um, and, um, yeah, so as long as they're physically robust enough to be um, tolerating the treatment um, and obviously from a psychiatric point of view, if they meet criteria, then, yeah, there's certain certain medications as well that uh, we have to sort of wait until certain, you know, a number of half-lives have elapsed um, uh, because they, you know, may kind of interact with the psilocybin in terms of the, the mechanism of action. So we're just mindful of a few things there. And I guess the other big thing would be, uh, we're not um, accepting, like if you're currently on an SSRI or SNRI antidepressant, then you either need to wean and cease um, and have a bit of a, a washout period or then um, or uh, you know, cross-titrated. Otherwise, they're just not eligible, unfortunately. So, yeah. Mm. So it's really <laughs> my, my, my sort of take home from that is, is um, stop me if I'm wrong, but it's, really 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 heavily screening for people who are physiologically and psychologically robust it's their end of life they're not imminently dying and that's something which i was a bit concerned about from a pr perspective was going to be picked up on by you know less uh less uh, less honest brokers of the information in the media where they would sort of paint some picture whereby you know my granddad's really unwell and then these sort of crazy scientists want to come in and you know make them trip on top of things but that was obviously i'm, I'm pleased to hear it hasn't been i mean because i think there is a bit of confusion about that it's like what constitutes end of life people can be walking around and their the, the oncologist has said sorry we're not going to do another round of chemo that's a terminally ill patient in the same way there's someone who is febrile and you know hours from death and uh, you know writhing around and i think there's <clears throat> there's not that much understanding of the massive dimensionality which constitutes people who are you know technically end receiving end-of-life care so i think anything that opens that discussion up is, is will, will help people to be a little bit more the general public to be much more accepting to think oh of course like my aunt who the, the oncologist said there's no more chemo is going to work for you she might be willing to take it you know so there's yeah, absolutely and you're right i think um there, there is a, a real misconception about you know, oh, I'm dying, and someone can say that, but they may have a prognosis of around two, three years. But I think um, when we hear that we're dying, we think, yeah, like in palliative circles, imminently dying. Uh, but people who have life-threatening illness, and um, we're we're getting better at keeping uh, diseases indolent, and our cancers kind of sleeping, if you like. So there's. Um, situations where people may have metastatic disease in the case of cancer, but we have treatments that can kind of keep it under wraps for at least a while. So that buys them time, very valuable time. But if they're spending that time terrified, 
you know, I, I think yeah, this is, it's a long time to be terrified. Absolutely, and it is. Um, you you sort of you want them to sort of use this precious time that they have, but um, uh, and you know, when there's a big push in Australia, I don't know about the UK, but um, certainly in Australia, there's a big push for now early integration in palliative care because we know that if you get uh, people involved in palliative care, it improves their um, prognosis. They have longer survival times and they have better quality of life and symptom management. So um, it, you're right, though, it is a long time to maybe be sitting with that knowledge of I'm going to die and that is terrifying. So uh, we, we do see a big place for this if, um, you know, potentially we, we can yield some some effective results. So. Yeah. Well, we're all we're all shuffling towards the grave. Grave, we're just we moving sure at different places. That's the way. <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, there's there's all these different sort of disorders that are kind of really screaming for different areas of you know the, the psychedelic research. Um, you know, and they're talking about you know the um, prevalence statistics and so forth. And I'm just like, yeah, but 100 percent of us are actually going to die. So, and not not everyone's going to be scared of that, but it's something that we're all going to be experiencing one day, and we have to square with that. Mortality is not something we do very easily in our society, though. I feel like just my again world according to Niall, but um, <laughs> in a way, part of me, part of me is it's saddened that there isn't the, the the governmental support forthcoming, but especially with things as they are in the world. Oh. I don't know, are we ready to politicize this yet? So I think if there is a little bit of a slower burn uh, and there's, there's the, the data gets more robust, the, the, the researchers learn you know, through trial and error what, what is working and what isn't. And then people from different fields come in and have respectful, civil, philosophical discussions about that because the last, I'm not particularly, I, it bothers me to see really people with large platforms and profiles in this space highlighting on Twitter certain politicians who would be cool with the idea of this because i think a how do you know that b it's subject to the political cycle and c that can be the most polarizing thing that there possibly is so i I, it's a shame Mm. and i love the government funding Mm -hmm. but government funding comes from the government and do i trust this in the mouths of the politicians at the moment yeah Uh, regardless what your political persuasions are and Mm -hmm. i've lived in australia it's not much better it's not much better there there's a lot of yeah, and, and that, you're exactly right. It's just, we're all a joke, um, um, but you're right, and and it can turn on a dime. Um, so, you know, we're in a really tricky situation in that regard. Look, I think you know, at the end of the day, we just hope that we let the science speak, um, and hope that there is enough support generated out there to to move the research forward and and um, and bring it to people who need it and, and increase that access. It needs to be. It needs to be disseminated by the adults, Absolutely. and I don't know if the politicians are the adults, and I don't know <laughs> if the activists that that sort of you know like anyone holding a placard, anyone holding a placard. Uh, I don't necessarily want them to, to be the person who's saying yay or nay for any of this stuff. I think it's better in the hands of people like people like yourself. Well, on the subject of shuffling towards, I'm very conscious of your of your time have taken up a great deal of it. And it's, I know that it's later on, you're in Melbourne now. So no, no, pleasure, pleasure. If if people are, and we've mentioned this before, but there, there's a few names that have come up and I'm very keen, I have a, a, my little hobby horses to try and help the Antipodean research grow as much as I can. We've mentioned a few of the organisations which I, I will link to. If someone is listening to this in Australia or is interested in see what's happening in Australia and NZ, We've mentioned Prism, Prism, we've mentioned Entheogenesis Australia, there's Mind Medicine Australia, there's the work at St. Vincent's. Is there any other research uh, area, professionals or sort of entities that aren't getting enough ink? Is there anyone that you would think should be on people's radar? I think that that's the the key kind of areas. At the moment, um, you know, obviously, yeah, ourselves at St. Vincent's um, in Melbourne, there's Prism who are doing, you know, an enormous amount you know, trying to progress the research in, in Australia, um, Mind Medicines Australia. Um, we've got that there, sort of, I guess we're, we're kind of the, the, the key three there. Entheogenesis Australis, sort of, I don't think actually they've dropped the Australis. Entheogenesis in Australia have, um, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a different organisation. Again, they just are the ones that sort of prompted my my um, my interest in, in the um, this research space. And they put on a hell of a symposium. It was wonderful. But I think in terms of the progressing of the research, those are your, sort of your key organisations there. So, But we've got lots of ideas, lots of ideas, and we want to do more. So we just um, – but we need funding. <laughs> I think 
few few people who have um had had positive experiences um joking aside who who have a few spare quid yeah. uh, and i know there are a few in australia so um it's a better return on investment than you don't need another jet ski just no, put the money right. towards these places <laughs> that's right that's right yeah but great karma will come your way i i think um yeah there's i think there's a certain um uh type of person that's very very drawn to um the, the psychedelic research palliative care space as well and i think they're they're very benevolent the, the people that i work with are beautiful second to none um and i'm very fortunate to be working amongst really lovely people who've got beautiful intention as well so it would not be wasted money at all brilliant well that's um that's a nice a nice pitch to end things off <laughs> mark mark thank you so much for your time and uh, i look forward to doing this in person sometime where it's uh, or it's warmer uh, <laughs> when I'm, yeah, when it's, I was very jealous that you're moving into the summer now. So, uh, uh, we had 39 degrees today. I was a stinker. <laughs> it's still warm tonight. We've got fans and air conditioners going. So, my heart bleeds. My heart bleeds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll have a beer when you come back. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Pleasure. Well, I really enjoyed that chat with Margaret. I'd just like to say a big thanks to her and the team at St. Vincent's and wish them the very best with this trial as it unfolds over the next few years. If you want more information as to how you can support the work that they're doing, just head to mindmanifestpodcast.com and in the podcast section, episode 13 with Margaret, there's a full list of links to all the different organisations and things that we talk about. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, just simply go there and hit the subscribe to the podcast link. And regardless what platform you use to get your downloads, you can either go through Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud or the other various platforms. So until next time, take care.